there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 102. Today is Sunday, July the 9th, 2017. Today's guest is uh, a Chilean-American organist, harpsichordist, and musicologist Felipe Dominguez. He is a graduate of Brian Young University, where he studied organ and harpsichord with Douglas Bush and Don Cook, and achieved bachelor's of music and master of music degrees there. Felipe has pursued further postgraduate organ construction in Europe with Eduardo Bellotti, Hans Davidson, Francesco Cera, and Harald Vogel. Felipe has performed as a soloist and in ensembles in Chile, Argentina, the United States, and Italy. He is currently pursuing a PhD in musicology at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Since 2011, Felipe has been the organist and assistant music director at First Presbyterian Church of Annandale, Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So today in this conversation, uh, Felipe talks about uh, Chilean organ culture, uh, challenging yourself when you practice your 10,000 hours to become a better organist, and also about the importance of seeking out specialists in various historical periods and national schools of organ compositions. This is a very intriguing conversation. Let's go to the show. So, Felipe, I'm so delighted we finally connecting you on uh, another side of Atlantic in, uh, in Washington, D.C., right? Correct. Yeah, that's where I live. And I'm in Lithuania with, uh, on, the Balt- on the Baltic uh, coast, east side of the Baltic uh, Sea. And we are hours apart, but we share a common passion for pipe organ. And uh, I'm sure our listeners from 89 countries around the world will be very eager to know more about you, your work, your experiences, right? And, uh, and your advice, basically, how to be better organized, how to get constantly better at what you do. So thank you so much for your time and generosity. You're very generous and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's um, it's really a pleasure, and I was honored uh, that you consider me for for this because I've I've looked at some of your other episodes and some of the people that you've had on, and um, you know, so I I definitely was honored that you consider me for this. So so thank you so much. Great. You know, I'm very very curious always to meet uh, new people uh, who who have never actually physically met, but I feel that we'll be having a wonderful conversation and I just usually like to imagine we're having a virtual cup of cappuccino together and uh, chatting about the things with that we both love and enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's uh, for starters uh, could you share with our listeners a story how you first fell in love with the organ? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from uh, Chile. Uh, Chile yeah. is uh, South America, next to, right next to Argentina. It's a very long country. 
Um, so I, that's where I actually fell in love with the organ first. Uh, mm. I was about 15 years old, um, and I started, uh, you know, started to learn how to play the piano because I wanted to play the organ or play the keyboard instrument for my congregation where I worshipped. And uh, there was nobody else to play, and they didn't have an organ. They just have a, a small Casio keyboard that uh, you know you could you could go go on and play the hymns on that. So I taught myself how to play uh, so I could accompany the hymns. And um, eventually, I started studying piano at a conservatory, and that's where I met an organist. Uh, who's a very good friend of mine now, um, who was my first teacher. His name is Edgardo Campos. He lives in France, in Paris now, and he's, he's an organist there. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he was an organist in a cathedral in Santiago. Um, mm-hmm. So I lived about eight hours from Santiago. So one day he, he took me up there to, to the church to see the organ. And the organ had, built, had been built by uh, an Argentinian organ builder who had studied with Caballe Cole. His name was uh, Moretini. Uh-huh. He, yeah. he, was, he was Italian and then traveled to Argentina and built many organs in Argentina and also in Chile. And, uh, and his organs are a la Caballe Cole. They're very, very romantic, very French romantic um, uh, so I heard that organ for the first time uh, in a concert, and I just fell in love with the sound. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, uh, you know, sitting down there. And th- when that first chord, I think the first thing he played in the program was uh, the, the Toccata, the Bach, the minor Toccata. And, uh, yeah. and I was just uh, captivated. I just couldn't believe the sound that was coming out of the instrument and uh, um, it's been a, a love affair with the instrument ever since. Um. So, Felipe, it's a very fascinating story, right? You, you met uh, pipe organ in a, in, a, in a country where we don't know any, much about the uh, pipe organ culture, right? But right. I'm sure they have, you know, beautiful uh, organs uh, which date back centuries ago, right? Uh, built in the maybe Spanish style, maybe even English style, I would say, also. Could you, do you remember anything about the Chilean organ culture from, from that times? Uh, yeah, and, actually, uh, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, in Chile, um, and, and in South America in general, there was, uh, when, when the first uh, Spanish uh, colonizers came they started building organs in the major cathedrals obviously because they were almost a need for the services but then um, there was sort of a, a blackout period where there weren't many organs built and there was a revival when the economy uh, started to do better in the richer countries like in Chile and Argentina and Brazil um, so in, uh, in about the 1800s, there was, uh, sort of a revival of organ building. And that's how in Chile, for example, we ended up with about 11 Cavallico organs, I believe that were, were, you know, 
purchased by congregations all over the country. And um, I, I think most of them are not playable now because they fell into disrepair. But uh, there's a good number of fine organs. There was also uh, organs uh, imported from England. Uh, most of the organs that survive now are from the Romantic uh, era. There's mm -hmm. one organ that was built in the Baroque period that's in the cathedral that um, it's being studied now. And uh, there, there is actually a, a fellow who's studying, and I his name escapes me now, but he's um, writing a dissertation on this organ specifically, and he's uh, studying at Oxford. Oxford. Um, so that'll be an interesting, once he completes the, his work, it'll be interesting to see the history of the organ, uh, the Baroque organ in the Cathedral of Santiago. Um, but anyways, there is, a, there is a long tradition and a history of organ building. Unfortunately, there's no much left of that now. And uh, there's not, the organ culture is not very big. There's actually, you, you cannot uh, study organ really formally in a university in Chile, at, at least. Um, that's why I had to leave the country to study organ because there was just, there was no program for, for organists. So uh, the situation is not very, very promising right now, but there are many young organists that are being trained elsewhere and coming back to Chile. So uh, that may be the, the way that, you know, in the future, the culture is revived. Uh -huh. You know, Felipe, you are the first or the second, actually, organist from, uh, from South America, originally from South America, who, whom I interviewed on this podcast. And I talked uh, before that uh, with, uh, with the organist from Argentina. Okay. And uh, it was also a similar situation and uh, very dramatic uh, changes are needed, beautiful instruments from the past, but vastly undervalued and um, in, in, in not in a very good shape, right? In need of quality restoration. And um, musicians are not paid very well in churches, right? Uh, a similar situation, I suspect, are in Chile, is in Chile. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Do you have plans to go back and revive organ culture back, back home? Well, as of right now, I, I don't have plans to move back, uh, mm -hmm. but, but I have been back a few times. And in fact, I was there last year in uh, my hometown and I played a concert. Um, so it was very well attended. The church was packed. It was a Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I'm, I'm definitely trying to help that way. Uh, you know, with, with the culture. And, and eventually one of my long-term plans is to write a uh, organ manual in Spanish for, for yeah. people to just teach themselves how to play the organ. There are some that have been written in the last century, but I think they're definitely outdated uh, with, with older uh, techniques and, and uh, older pedagogical methods. So I think that's, that's definitely needed. And, uh, the thing about Spanish is that there's so many people that speak Spanish, you know, from Mexico all the way down to Chile, Argentina, and then in Spain, uh, in Europe. So you definitely have a, a large audience, and, and there's, there's definitely a, a need for, 
or something like that for a pedagogical method? Big, uh, big market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I met not physically, but online another organist um, from Chile, from Chile, and he organizes, uh, I think, festival in uh, Valparaiso. Yeah, I think as uh, Christian Sunt is that is that correct? Yeah, I think. Yeah, another, I think. Another, I, another, I, think not, not I know a few people that that do that in Valparaiso. So mm-hmm. they have some nice instruments there. Yeah, it's good that some somebody is really taking taking a lead, right, and uh, taking responsibility. Maybe the the situation is not the best in terms of finances right now, but maybe the, you know, the interest will rise uh, when things get started a little bit. And uh, because now we are living in a global economy, right? Even a festival in Chile could have funds from all over the world, right? Supporting this cause through Kickstarter, for example, or Indiegogo or other platforms. Um, You know, it, it's it's very possible today, but of course a lot of competition. You have to rise above the crowd because everybody is doing this online things. But technology is there, and and we just have to learn to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I I've definitely uh, just changing the subject a little bit. I've I've seen the work that you've done, and uh, I was I was very pleased on how you you've kind of. Uh, pioneered uh certain online marketing and materials and uh yeah it's 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 very good what what you're doing um uh, that's definitely i think a path that uh and an example that that we can follow as as organists um yeah promote your work and um and try to get people interested in in that so and i think we're living in those days when the role of the gatekeepers are diminishing. Uh, gatekeepers meaning uh, big right. agencies, right, for organists, uh, managing, management organizations are diminishing because attention is so scarce now and, uh, and uh, people are everywhere doing their own things and they also are struggling and the uh, music industry is struggling. So uh, if you even hire an agent, professional agent, still an organist has to do the work themselves, right, to promote. So sometimes it's not even worth, uh, you know, hiring an agent. Yeah, I think so. I, uh, you know, um, today, though, that you, you have to be creative, I think, um, to make a living. Because on top of developing your art, you have to make a living. You know, back in the day, people were uh, had patrons who who gave them uh, funding so they wouldn't have to worry about their basic needs. But you know, those those type of arrangements don't exist anymore so much. Uh, there may be some exceptions, but we have to figure out a way to make a living at the same time while while developing our our art. And I think you've tapped into something that's that that it's an example to follow. Um, to, to and, and like like you said, you know the gatekeepers are their influence is going down. So we have more power individually as organists to yeah. promote ourselves. 
One of the easiest things to do, Philippe, for everybody, for, for any organist who wants to share their art, basically, is, is, is not to hide it under the table and, uh, you know, maybe show under special occasion like a concert or special solemn celebration in a church, right? We all record that and share it on YouTube. That's understandable. But uh, what I'm talking about is sharing the process, what, which leads to the result, maybe day-to-day activity, maybe a picture of the organ that you visited recently, right? Maybe right. an interview with the organ you had uh, uh, at the coffee table, just like we're talking right now, having a virtual cappuccino. You could have a real cappuccino with a friend, right? And right. with their agreement, you could um, record it and post it on your, on your platform, you know, anywhere. And right. uh, if you're doing this regularly enough and uh, long enough, it's like a snowball effect. People will start to notice this and start to follow you. It's, it's basically you're taking the leadership. That's what I started doing this. I'm not, I'm not a very special, technically skilled person at all. I just learned on the go, basically, because creativity and technology are so interconnected now that an, a simple organist like myself can can do those things very easily. If you can push the button, you can do these things, I think. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So um, let, me, let me share a little bit how I ended up in the United States, if you don't mind. Um, very interesting, please. So um, I, I was, uh, like I said before, obviously I was in Chile and there was no way to, to study down there. So I started... Uh, uh, looking for opportunities outside the country to study. And, um, and that's how I met a professor online, again, from uh, Brigham Young University in Utah, uh, uh-huh. Douglas Bush. So he, he passed a few years ago of cancer, and it, it's, it's been a, a, a difficult time because he, he was a dear friend and a mentor. But uh, he... Um, he connected me with, with some people and, uh, and he basically, he believed in me before I believed in myself. So he, he, he asked for some videos of me playing and then he said, uh, you need to come here. And he started a plan for me, for me to, to, to come to the United States. So eventually I, after school, I, I got a scholarship to go to Brigham Young University and study organ there. In Utah, mm-hmm. this so, is a wonderful university today because they have a gr- good and very creative organ program right there. Um, and I've interviewed some of the students there too, and they there seem, seem to, to be doing very creative work in terms of pr- uh, learning the pedagogy aspect of the organ. For example, one of their organ students interviewed me uh, online. And it was part of the, their organ pedagogy assignment. Yeah. Uh, everybody in the department had to interview maybe 10 or 20 people, 20 organists, right, uh, from the organ world. And we connected and we met through Skype, I think. And it was wonderful. Just like I'm talking to, to you right now, he talked with me uh, to, uh, about similar things. I got to share my story, and this was part of the uh, assignment. 
And, and that person, this organist, might develop those interviewing skills and later they will be invaluable in, in his profession. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a good program uh, in terms of uh, the quality of the, the instruction as well as the available materials, both in the library. The library is fantastic. I mean, there's, uh, you can find pretty much anything you, you ever need to learn organ and uh, as far as repertory scores and everything. And there's also good instruments available for practice and, and performance. Uh, so it was, it was definitely a good program and I, I really enjoyed it and, and learned very much uh, from it. So I did, I did a bachelor's there and then I also continued to do my master's mm-hmm. in, in organ performance. And then, uh, um, I moved to Washington D.C. to to do a master's in political science. Nothing. That's how I ended up here. Uh, but now, after I finished my degree in political science, uh, George Washington University. Now I'm pursuing a PhD in musicology at a Catholic University of America. So it's not uh, it's not a performance degree, uh, but it's it's definitely something that's giving me a lot of uh, tools to. Uh, explore some areas in in the organ world, but from the from the musicological lens. Um, right, you you are so open minded and broad. You have broad cultural horizons, and uh, you broaden your experience this way. Right, you're not only studying organ playing, but you you have a political science experience. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. What led you to to that sphere? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I think uh, when I, I really, when I was in Chile, I was never really interested in politics or in society. Uh, but when I was at Brigham Young University, I actually did a second degree uh, in political science there as well during my bachelor's. Um, I, I just became very interested in in the keys, how the world works, how you know how things work. Uh, you know, when you go to a big city, uh, you know, you go to Paris, you go to London, you go to Washington, D.C., um, and you see that things just work. You know, you see the, the cars moving, you see people get fed, uh, you know. So that's, that's really um, what interests me, how societies work, how all these people are able to live together and pursue their own interests, and while at the same time... Uh, getting together to pursue common interests like security. For example, you have a police force, fire department. Um, you have uh, different programs that people uh, get together to, to fund those programs for the, for the good of the, of the community. So that's, that's definitely what interests me as well as, you know, just some uh, basic philosophical questions about government and, uh, the founding of of the United States, which was based on um, you know on the philosophical writings of the previous generation right the founders of the United States kind of put that into practice um, for the first time before it was that 's why they called the United States an experiment because nobody had ever done this kind of uh, self government uh, you know constitutional republic. That, that was founded. Uh, and obviously a lot of countries later follow the model. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's what interests me uh, so much about, 
about politics. It's a very broad category. So. so the first constitution in the world was created in the United States, right? The, the what? The first constitution in the world was created in the United States, right? Yes. So the first constitutional republic, yes, definitely. Uh, now, the, the England actually has a much longer tradition of, uh, you know, legal balance of power uh, than the United States, but that's, uh, that's called common law. There's no really constitution uh, because things can evolve as the laws are passed. The, the difference with the United States is that the Constitution actually sets up a framework that cannot be changed unless it's done through the proper amendment process, which is set, set forth in the Constitution. So there are certain things that you cannot, certain laws that you just cannot pass. For example, you cannot violate the rights of, of uh, certain people uh, because it, all the laws are measured against that Constitution. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's the difference. Uh, but yeah, the, the United States was the first constitutional republic. It's like a civic Bible, right? Correct. Yeah. But it's a, it's, a legal, it's a legal document. So, correct. Which is the basis of our modern society. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what was the second constitution in the world uh, uh, after the United States? I, I think after the French Revolution, uh, there was some attempts there. Uh, but I, I'm not sure. That's actually a good question. Uh, I, I know in Latin America, for example, uh, many countries, Argentina, Chile, try to emulate the constitutional model of the United States. But, I, but my feeling is that Europe followed. Uh, th- there were some countries in Europe that followed before mm-hmm. South America. Uh, it was actually Lithuania, the second uh, uh, oh, constitution really? the United States was Lithuania. Our commonwealth with Poland, we had a commonwealth and the same, the common country with Poland, we we had this treaty and our constitution was um, created after that, after the United States, yes, very old. But of course, we got uh, this Russian occupation uh, started with Tsar Tsar, uh, regime in at the end of the 18th century, it, it all stopped. Our constitution didn't um, didn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's actually, and and I know we're we're kind of getting off uh, the the organ topic, but it's actually uh, related because the fact that we have stable governments allows us to develop our art. If we didn't have a stable government with with the government protections that we have you know, organs will be the last thing that people will be thinking about because they will be thinking about not getting killed, <laughs> right? So, uh, but, but the, the last point I wanted to make is just that um, uh, this is the best form of government is a constitutional republic that guarantees protections. Uh, a, a lot of people always talk about democracy, uh, but really democracy is not a good form of government because a majority at any point could... Um, you know, override the rights of a minority. That's what a constitutional republic prevents. Uh, 
uh, it doesn't matter how big the majority is, you can have a 90% majority, but the constitution will prevent them from, uh, you know, running over uh, the rights of the minority. Uh, and that's the best form of government. And that's really the governments that we have all over the country. We really don't have a democracy. The, the only, the, the most famous democracy was Athens, right? Uh, that lasted for about 500 years. But we really don't have a democracy today. Uh, but a lot of people speak that way. When, you know, when you hear the news, they talk about democracy, democracy, democracy. Uh, it's not really a good form of government. So we really shouldn't <laughs> talk about that so much. We should talk about constitutional republics. Yeah, that's what, what it, it is in most of the Western countries, right? Constitutional Correct. republics, exactly, to, to have this balance of power and influence between right. the people, the government, and majority and minority, and everything in between. Wonderful. It's so interesting to talk with you uh, about those things, um, Felipe, because not always we can meet uh, such broad-minded and culturally sophisticated organists, right? <laughs> many times organists are only worried about organs and uh, how to play the notes correctly, <laughs> right? And here you are studying uh, uh, the constitutional republic and those things uh, ancient uh, democracy, uh, democracy of Athens and how the world runs, right? It's so fascinating that you have this mentality of, of openness. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I, I am an optimist. I think um, things are getting better around the world and, and that's good for us as organists and as musicians, as artists, because, uh, um, you know, we need to... Uh, and we need to participate too. Uh, so, uh, for example, here in the United States, we have uh, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, which is uh, a government-funded uh, program that allows funding for art, artistic pursuits. So for plays, uh, theater, art, and it includes music as well and organs and organists. Um, uh, pr probably a small percentage for organists. But regardless, uh, there is a move now to cut some of that funding. Uh, mm -hmm. So we should be engaged as musicians in, in politically and, uh, and try to, you know, pursue our interest and, and try to influence the government uh, because we believe that arts are a bomb that, cover, that can uh, sort of what was it, uh, the, they say, tame the wild beast, right? So it's a bomb in society that tends to color and, um, and help a society become more civilized. Uh, so so uh, I really believe that, that without the arts, without uh, music, without, um, you know, art and, and other things, uh, people wouldn't be as civilized as, as they are. So. Exactly. And uh, you're talking about influencing, uh, let's say, governmental uh, decisions, right? Not to cut art um, funding, uh, let's say, right? An individual could, could do this, uh, go to, to a senator or a, or a governor, right? And, um, and advocate about the importance of the art in this community, right? Absolutely. But that person in power usually will not listen to just anybody from the street, right? Right. You yeah, have so to have 
So again, it's important to have a strategy and to understand how it works. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, but but definitely, uh, if you have if you collect a good number, there's always strength in numbers, right? So if you have one or two people talking, probably won't do much. But if you can gather a community of you know hundreds, then uh, you know that's that's a different tune. People will listen. They will have to. Yes. Yes, because now internet is like a megaphone. It, exactly. It's an uh, amplification machine, amplification tool. Whatever you you tell online gets shared and amplified, right? So your influence might be quite big. A simple blogger uh, with, with a few thousand readers who are very engaged can really change things in this community. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wonderful, um, Felipe. What it is that you 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 do as an organist nowadays? I know you are an organist at the Presbyterian Church, right? Correct. Yeah. So I'm I'm the and I was just uh, called to be the music director as well. So we used to have a music director who was a wonderful conductor, uh, Ron Freeman, and he he retired. So that responsibility fell on to me now. So. So I'm the music director and organist at First Presbyterian Church here in us. It's in Annandale, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. It's about 10 minutes from, from the Congress. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. I do have a tracker organ uh, that was built in the 70s. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's what, what it's called here in the United States, a neo-baroque organ, which... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, some people don't like him very much <laughs> because they had issues. Uh, you know, the, the mixtures, for example, are extremely bright. Uh, mm-hmm. The cornet is very loud and very, very nasal. Uh, but, you know, I like it. And it's, this, is, uh, this instrument was sort of part of uh, children of its era of the aesthetics of the time. And and I think it's good to preserve them because uh, it's a good historical case case study. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful instrument, though I, I really enjoy it very much. To us, it um, challenges you challenges you as a professional, right, as an artist, to adapt to right. to do to do things differently than you would expect, right? Uh, if you go to a symphonic organ or a romantic organ or even a real Baroque organ uh, in, in Europe, right? You, you would do things differently. And here you have this neo-Baroque sound, which also might sound wonderful, but you have to um, think a little bit deeper how you, could those, how you could play with those bright mixtures, for example. Maybe you could transpose an octave downward some of the passages that you, that you that need. For example, in uh, Vidor Toccata, Entire Vidor Tocata could be played one octave lower with those mixtures. And it yeah. sounds very, very wonderful. Just oh, like that's a good idea, actually. I hadn't thought of that. That's a mm-hmm. very good yeah. So yeah. that's one of the possibilities to, 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 to adapt to this harsh sound of Baroque and make it more solid and more foundation-like. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. What other activities do you do in church besides playing the organ and leading probably the choirs? Right. So that's that's the other thing. It's, um, I have to um, lead the choir and 
choose the music for the choir. We have a small choir of about 10 people, uh, between seven and 10, depending on the, on the season. Uh, but they, they are, they're fairly good singers. So we're, we're able to do fun things. Um, now the key here is to pick a wide variety of music. So people, uh, you know, can be exposed to, to, and, and can be not entertained, but, um, otherwise they get bored if it's all Mozart or if it's all Bach or so we try to do some, some uh, music from the older repertoire. And also we try to do like spiritual songs, which are very uh, upbeat and, uh, you know, it can be very, very exciting. There's also a lot of modern, um, you know, Christian uh, choir music that's been written now that that are. It's also very, very exciting to do. So, so we try to mix it up, uh, make sure people get a variety of of repertory. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is, uh, we actually have a concert series uh, that that we put together. That so so I need to organize that and make sure we get uh, get people to perform. Um, mm-hmm. It can be organist or also instrumentalist or singers. So uh, that's something definitely. Maybe maybe we'll have you w- one of these days. Thank you. You are very generous. You know it's it's so it's so fascinating to hear. Um, a, an organist share experience in the church that you have a, a support for what you do, right? You probably the pastors and, and the community congregation elders uh, in Presbyterian Church um, they all go to get together and think about your music program and say, "I like we like what Philip Felipe is doing. Um, let's support it, and maybe our community and congregation can really." benefit from that and our little uh, First Presbyterian Church can be a center of our cultural activities in our community, right? And this is broad thinking again and strategic and what you're doing is so valuable. Yeah, we definitely get good support and, um, you know, we have funding for all the activities we do. We actually just did a, a major renovation on the organ that, that was a significant amount of money and uh, we were able to raise the, the funds um, in, in a year and a half or so. And, um, yeah, so we, we definitely have good support. People like what, what, they, what they see. Uh, I think the key is to be creative and to, um, and to provide, get some, give something back to the community, and then they respond to you. Um, yes. So. And in, in the case of Presbyterian churches, decisions get made not in, based on one person's maybe opinion, right? Like a head pastor, but the entire council probably gets together. And that's, I think, uh, uh, wiser than to have uh, one figure who, who decides what gets picked or what's not. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's... Uh... Mm-hmm. We have, uh, you know, the, the elders, uh, the church, and they're all on board with, with our music program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, have, we have some of them in our choir, so that helps. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely. That's, that's very good. Excellent. So, uh, uh, wonderful, uh, Felipe. It's interesting. Uh, you're playing, leading, thinking about the music and, and even 
broader things in life. Um, could you share an experience uh, uh, with our listeners? Uh, how can they get better at being organist? Would, what would be the number first step they should take? Yeah, so that's that's a good a good question. Um, one of the things uh, that I've been thinking about lately is uh, there's a fellow here in the United States named um, Malcolm Gladwell that yeah. wrote the book uh, in a you know the main assumption and what a lot of people are taking out of this book, which I think is a little misleading. He talks about ten thousand hours that that's what it takes for anybody to become a master. Outliers, right? What's that? It's called Outliers. Outliers, correct. Yeah, that's that's the book. So, um, however, the the actual uh, scholar who came up with this theory is a fellow, his last name is Erickson, and he's a professor at, at Florida State University, if I'm not mistaken. And... Uh, He's actually the one who did a lot of this research and came up with this theory. But his point, he says, it's not necessarily 10,000 hours. That, that's really not what makes the difference. What makes the difference is something that he calls deliberate practice. And uh, if you read his paper, you can, you can uh, look at this uh, more carefully. Uh, but deliberate practice means that every time you sit down, you have to challenge yourself beyond your comfort level. Uh, you know, it's easy to sit down and play a piece that we've played a thousand times before uh, and just play for an hour, you know, and, and that's fine to do. I think that that's part of the enjoyment of, of what we do. But he says when you're practicing something, you have to challenge yourself and you have to constantly be pushing yourself beyond your comfort level trying to do something that is hard for you to do, uh, a scale that's difficult, a passage and a piece and a trio sonata that's very difficult and you just, you just can't get through it. That's what deliberate practice means and that's what's going to get you to the next level. Um, not, not so much the 10,000 hours, but 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Yes, you, you always should strive to be, to be a better than you were yesterday, right? Right. Better today than you were yesterday. And that's what deliberate practice means. Um, what would be the second step? Uh, well, so, so the key is obviously that. Uh, now, one thing that I have done uh, is uh, I, I think, you know, the, the repertory in organ music is very wide. We have uh, about 600 years of, of repertory and many, many traditions, right? So you have the Spanish repertory, the French classic, the English, the German, uh, Italian, and, and so forth. These are all very unique languages. They're not all the same. They're very particular and they're tied to their culture. Uh, now, in particular, I, I like the older repertory more. Obviously, I play all kinds of music because as a church organist, I have to play, you know, a wide variety of music. But what, what I'm trying to specialize is on the older, on the older repertory. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I have been trying to do is I've tried to seek out specialists in those areas 
and learn from them about that particular repertory. For example, uh, Hans Davidson is uh, his specialty. I will say is the North German repertory, North German Baroque. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, Matthias Weckmann. That's something that he has studied very, very carefully and in much detail. He's looked at the documents, and so he has a level of insight of that repertory that. Uh, by virtue of the work that he's been doing that other people don't have. So what I have done is I have studied this music with him and I have read his, his dissertation. Uh, so I think that's, that's the path that I'm pursuing. I'm trying to seek out specialists in different repertories and, and trying to learn from them the nuances of the repertory. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Did you go to North German uh, Gothenburg Organ Academy where Hans uh, leads summer organ courses every two years in Sweden? Yeah, I've been there and I've also, uh, about four years ago or so, I went uh, to Northern Italy to an academy that he does there in the summer. Marano. Mm -hmm. Marano, yeah. And that was fantastic. I I had a chance to have a few lessons with him on... uh, Scheidemann and um, and it was it was very good. We and we had a chance to you know in the evenings to sit down and just talk about these things you know and um, mm-hmm. it was very good. Yeah, but there it's is specialists in uh, in uh, in this music uh, and in in Spanish music, in French Baroque, in Italian music. Uh, Eduardo Bellotti is one that I've saw, uh, studied uh, Italian repertory with. Uh, he's he's very good at it. So um, that's I think that's that's a path that I'm pursuing. Uh, I think it's is the right way, at least for me, um, because again, this repertory is not all the same. Uh, they're all very different. Remember, back in the day, people really didn't travel that much uh, from one side of the. You know, they were born in a in a town, and they pretty much stayed in the general area, there's a few exceptions, but even Bach, Bach never went to, to Italy, for example, or other places. So, um, so, uh, you know, that's, uh, the, all the repertory is very regional and, and all the, the traditions are very local. So I think we need to understand the repertory within its context, uh, rather than to have generalized, uh, performance practice about, for example, you will say, oh, all the trills in the Baroque are like this. And you, you hear these many times from professors and other, and, and there is really a lot more nuance to it than that. It's, it really depends on the area and who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good advice you're doing. To take, to summarize what you said, is probably to take each a historical period and each national school of organ composition very carefully and deconstruct what the key the key um, elements of it were and if you study for example Cabezon uh, from Spain uh, do not play it uh, in the same way as you would be doing uh, let's say Gabrielli right from from Italy or Couperin uh, in in France right uh, or if you do uh, uh, romantic stuff like Reger, uh, from the German standpoint, you play differently than you would be playing Vidor or Vierne, right? Absolutely, yeah. Or Tournament. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or Tournament, yeah. 
Wonderful. So, Felipe, I I think you you have a, such a broad experience, and people around the world are so inspired by what you are saying right now. Uh, and could you share with us a link where they can connect with you or find out more about your work? Yeah, absolutely. My uh, so my website is. Uh, Felipe Dominguez.net and my name spelled out is F E L I P E. Dominguez is D O M I N G U E Z.net. So Felipe Dominguez.net. Yeah. And uh, you can find links there to, to my LinkedIn profile, to my YouTube channel, and, and uh, Facebook as well. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Felipe, for this conversation. Uh, it's been wonderful to connect with you. And uh, I wish you a very creative year in, in your community, uh, in your First Presbyterian Church, with your um, you know, creative leading of the church, the musical life around the, the big uh, neo-baroque organ that you, that you have. So I think... Uh, uh, I think... Uh, I have a feeling that we'll meet again, even face to face, right? Yeah, I hope so. Um, mm -hmm. let's, let's stay in touch, and, and hopefully, touch. maybe we'll either have you over here, or we'll, when I'm in Europe, maybe we we'll get a chance to meet. Okay, thank you so much, and uh, keep creating, and most importantly, probably keep sharing what you have created. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.